It's always good to see you Sunday after Sunday. Good to see you, Kyla and Transford. Welcome. I think we have children's church this morning. The children can uh, follow Susan, I think. One of my good friends told me that wherever I preach, I have good things to say, but I also need to project my voice so that people can hear those good things. So at some point, if I start slowing down, maybe Bryce, who is seated at the back, can raise their hand to tell me I need to project my voice a little bit more. A commitment to prayer. Someone said if you want to... Um, embarrass or humble a Christian, just ask them about their private time of prayer. Because we can talk much about our Bible reading, but our prayer, our private time of prayer, that's something else. I want to ask you about your personal private time of prayer, because I already asked myself. But the passage that is before us today, Mark 14, 32, 42, is an encouragement from Christ Jesus that as believers, as a church, all of us, we need to commit ourselves, we need to commit our lives to prayer, that our lives need to be marked with his commitment to prayer, that we prioritize prayer in our lives. And this passage takes place during a very difficult moment in the life of Jesus Christ. And difficult times, like death, are bound to happen to all of us. Sometimes because of our own fault or even other times because of circumstances beyond our control. We live in post-Genesis 3. We live in a broken world. And this world, every day, gives testimony to the brokenness of sin. The Nigerian pastor who gets murdered by Boko Haram, the faithful parents whose child has left the faith much to their heartbreak. And so what do we do in difficult times and also when God feels distant? The passage that is before us today is an encouragement, even in dark times of our lives, in dark times of the soul, to commit ourselves to prayer. And so what is prayer? The Westminster Larger Catechism 178 asks the question and also responds in this way. Prayer is an offering of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That we offer our desires to God. We are helped by the Holy Spirit to do so and we acknowledge all the mercies of God and what he has done for us and in our lives. And why commit to prayer? We commit to prayer because prayer sustains Christian life and Christian ministry. At the passage that is before us, Jesus knows that he will soon face the cross. He has had a wonderful supper with his disciples. He has done what we call the upper room discourse. He has expressed his love to the disciples. He has prayed for them. He has prayed even for those who will come after. He has prayed for you and he has prayed for us. He has inaugurated the Lord's table. He has, gave, he has given his disciples his last words. And now he's in Gethsemane. 
the oil press, so we imagine it is an olive orchard. It was one of Jesus' favorite places that he would frequent and pray. So he leaves the eight at one particular time because Judas is already gone with the word sit here while I pray and he takes with himself Peter, James and John. And listen to the passage from there. Mark 14, 32-42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while I pray and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled and he said to them my soul is sorrowful even unto death remain here and watch and going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at end. So Jesus goes to Gethsemane. He asked the eight disciples, because Judas has already left, he's going to betray Jesus Christ. And he takes from the disciples, Peter, John, and James, and he goes further with them. Why? Because Peter, James, and John, as disciples, and we know a disciple is one who learns from a teacher. And Jesus Christ has been teaching his disciples for three years, so now they need to live not only their lives, but how they need to talk, and how they are going to take this ministry that in our grace and the new covenant as apostles, and how they are going to preach and live their lives. And so Jesus Christ wants even to be an example to his disciples on what they need to do in times of difficulty in their lives. That prayer will sustain Christian life and ministry. And Peter and James and John occupied even a special place uh, amidst, uh, amongst the 12 disciples. Because you know that God call, Jesus calls them first. He calls uh, Peter and Andrew who are brothers. He also calls uh, James and John who are brothers and he calls them at them first 
Peter and Andrew, then John and James. And when you read Luke, Luke almost tells us that these guys were fishing buddies, that they used to hang out together, that Peter and Andrew and James and John used to hang out together. And these are the first people that Jesus calls as his disciples. He even gives them a nickname. He calls James and John the sons of thunder, and he calls Peter the rock. That he, he has even a special interaction with these three disciples. When Jesus goes to raise the daughter of Jairus from the dead, Everybody else stays out of the place apart from who? Apart from the father of the daughter and apart from Peter, James, and John. He's hanging out with them. When Jesus Christ is going to be transfigured and have Moses and Elijah with him, almost to give testimony that Jesus Christ now is not, not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, but Christ is also going now to inaugurate a new covenant. For with his death on the cross and resurrection that will encompass people from every nation, every trunk and tribe. Who is with Jesus as the transfiguration? Peter, James and John. So they occupy a special place. They see Jesus Christ at his best during the transfiguration. And now they see Jesus Christ as it was, as at his worst. Jesus Christ is saying, this is how you model your ministry. This is how you're going to model your life. As a disciple, I'm teaching you. I'm letting you know that prayer will play an integral part in your life and in your ministry. So Jesus Christ is telling them, by taking them, the three of them, that the Christian life and in extension Christian leadership is led or lived out on our knees. That on our knees we beseech God to do his will in our lives and in our ministries. That we pray. That it becomes a priority in our lives. So Peter, you know, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. And throughout his life, Jesus modeled a commitment to prayer. He woke up early to pray. He stayed up late to pray. He went to desolate places. He went to the mountain. He went to the garden where it was not easy for people to find him so that he could pray. And even Mark tells us that the reason Jesus goes to a desolate place in Mark chapter 1 is because he's, he's done these miracles. Peter and the rest of the Peter and the rest of the disciples. He hasn't called the, the rest of the disciples at a particular time, but they are excited with the work of Jesus Christ. But he goes to a desolate place, a place that Mark says it wasn't easy to find him, so that he could do what? So that he could pray. That for Jesus Christ, prayer was not only a priority, but it was also intentional in his life and in how he prayed. He wanted less destruction as much as possible because he was engaged in serious business. How many times do we close our eyes as fast as possible to say a quick prayer? so as not to miss the, the kickoff or a status update 
or something very trivial that at that particular time is very important. Because as someone recently said, truth be told, at the end of it all, social media and entertainment will be a clear testimony that we add time, much time to pray, to read our Bibles, but we spend it on other things, on cut videos and on constant obsession on social media with who went where, who wore what, who liked what. And so if you have social media and watch television, like I do, I do have social media and watch television, it means that we have time to pray. It's only that we've not made it a priority and we've not been intentional with it. The life of Jesus, he made prayer a priority and he was intentional with prayer. Someone asked me, so what's the best time to pray? Because Jesus Christ prays in the morning and also prays at night. And I said, the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. And the way I answer that question is the way I answer, what's the best Bible plan for you to read this year? And the answer to that is the one that you are able to read. The best Bible plan is the one that you are able to read. And the best time to pray is the time that you are able to pray. If you are intentional with it and you carve time out of your schedule and you are able to pray. I like reading church history and recently I was reading the life of Martin Luther, the reformer, and he has a section where he talks of waking up early in winter to pray. And so when I was reading it, it was my first time to experience winter. When I came uh, to the U.S., we only have rainy and sunny seasons in Kenya. It's beautiful. But when I, when, I, when I was reading that, I assumed that Martin Luther's winter was my winter, only to realize that my winter is totally different from Martin Luther's winter. In this sense, there is snow, there is cold, but when I wake up in the morning, Tomorrow, if there is snow, for example, I'm not going to be called as Martin Luther was called. I have heat in my house. It's cold and it's comfortable. And so, we have the most comfortable life right now compared to believers who came in the past. Our bodies wear the most sophisticated clothes ever to be manufactured, and our homes are warm even far from the winter cold, but our hearts have, gone, have grown cold to the gospel, even as believers. And prayer can ignite the fire in our hearts to the gospel. So we live in an age of destruction, and if we are not careful, we will end up being the most prayerless church in the history of the church with a lot of comfort, with a lot of distractions, but with less prayer. So Jesus calls his disciples, he calls Peter, he calls John, and he calls James. And with his distress, and he's with his prayer, he's telling them, this is how to live your Christian life. This is how to lead your Christian ministry that I'm going to leave you to lead in prayer.
that it has to be a priority and a commitment. It's interesting when Jesus Christ comes and finds them sleeping, he doesn't excuse their sleep and they are tired. I mean, if you start reading Mark from chapter 10, these guys are tired. They have had a long day. They have had dinner. They have sung. Jesus has washed their feet. If you read John uh, 14 all the way to 17, they have listened to Jesus give a very long uh, message. Those, they are really, really tired. And so you would assume that Jesus Christ would say, you guys are, are, are tired. I understand. Because that's some of our excuse why we don't pray, right? Because of my job, I am tired and don't have the time. There's all this commitment. But Jesus Christ says, no, 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 no. You pray. Because prayer will enable you to overcome temptation. Listen to what Jesus tells the disciples when he finds them asleep for the first time. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so Jesus knows the heart of Peter, John, and James. And what he means when he says, uh, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Because you remember in earlier chapter, all the, the Gospels record this, Christ is talking about being um, betrayed and suffering and going to the cross. And what does Peter say? I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'm going to suffer with you. And Peter was quite, quite something. Because you can see even his leadership at that particular time. After Peter says that, all the disciples say the same thing. They say just like Peter has just said that he's not going to leave you. All of us are not going to leave you. That's what Jesus Christ knows their heart. He knows their intentions. He knows that they would like not to leave him. Their spirit, their desire is not to leave him. He's been their friend for three years. They have hanged out. They have had good time for three years. He has taught them. He has encouraged them. He's been a good friend to them. And they say, we are not going to leave you. So Jesus knows their spirit, their intentions are okay. But the flesh is weak. He's saying your desires, whatever you want, you are tired even at this particular moment. And if you don't commit yourself to prayer, then temptation is going to take over. And it's interesting, there's, there are echoes of what Jesus Christ is telling his disciples to what, Jesus, to what God tells Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Remember Genesis chapter 4, Cain is scheming and planning, is very sad that God seems to love Abel more than he loves him. And then God he says, sin, waiting for you waiting to pounce on you but you must lord over it you must you must lord over it and peter when he's writing in first peter he says like the devil is like a prowling lion a rolling lion looking at who is going to pounce on and tear and so jesus is saying your intentions are okay your intentions are good but you must pray because your flesh is weak so they love jesus and they desire to be faithful to him. And they have said, we will not leave you. 
We will be with you. But Jesus knows that without prayer, they will falter and fall into temptation. How's your prayer life? Do you ask God to guide and protect what you're going to see and watch throughout the day? Do you pray without ceasing? Do you say that as Christ told the disciples that he is divine, whoever abides in him will do much, and without him we can't be able to do anything. Do you say that to the Lord, that he needs to guide you, that he needs to guide your plans? Do you say, as James tells us, don't say, I will do such and such tomorrow. But if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills for me to do this, then I'm going to do it. How is our prayer life? Jesus says, prayer will keep us from temptation. And why will prayer keep us from temptation? Because every sin in our lives and every temptation that comes to us is always a temptation to distrust the goodness of God in our lives. The devil doesn't have any new tricks in the bag. How he tempted Adam and Eve, that is always his manuscript throughout uh, uh, throughout history because what does he do to Adam and Eve? He tells them, just distrust that God is who he says he is and that God is good. He says, God is hiding something from you. God is not God and God is not good. And if we commit ourselves to prayer and in our lives, then prayer will always point us. Prayer and the reading of the word will always point us to the goodness of God in our lives. And we can live on a daily basis being satisfied by what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And that weakens temptation in our lives. So we have to commit ourselves to prayer. Right. First point. Second point. Why do we need to commit ourselves to prayer? Because God is God and God is good. In times of great distress as people, we are more susceptible to doubt the goodness of God in our lives. But this should not be so because we have a perfect example to emulate in Jesus on what to do during the darkest periods of our lives. Look at the emotional agony of Christ Jesus. If you read, if you read your Bible and you get to Mark chapter 14 verses 32, it's almost a shock of the emotional distress of Christ Jesus. Because it says that he is distressed and greatly troubled. And even tells Peter and James and John that he's so sorrowful even unto death. is in a lot of emotional distress. But to understand the agony and the emotional distress of Jesus Christ, I usually tell people, 
Don't watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ if you want to understand why Jesus Christ is distressed and emotional at this particular time. Because the movie points the picture that the beatings of Christ and being nailed on the cross was what agonized Jesus Christ as Gethsemane. That he was distraught because his friends would desert him and that he would undergo eye-blushing humiliation and brutal physical suffering. So if you watch The Passion of Christ, the movie, almost the takeaway from that is that Jesus Christ is distressed in Gethsemane because he's going to be beaten up and all his friends are going to leave him. If that is the case, if that's the main reason why Jesus Christ is greatly troubled and sorrowful, then Jesus Christ did not practice what he preached. Because he said in Matthew, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So Jesus is saying when they talk bad about you, when they despise you, when they take your life, rejoice. And so, if Jesus is distraught by the mere prospect of physical suffering and being on the cross, then is Jesus going against his word. Furthermore, we have historical accounts of Christians who rejoiced when persecuted for their faith. A few days after this, almost a few months, I would say, like uh, three months after this, when Peter and the disciples are beaten up for proclaiming the gospel, Luke records that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor in his name. So is Peter and the apostles doing better than Jesus? Paul in Philippians says it is a joy and privilege to suffer for the sake of the gospel. For he has been granted, Paul writes, for you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So does Paul have a stronger faith than Jesus Christ? If what is distorting and if it's what disturbing Jesus Christ is the prospect of only being crucified. And throughout church history, persecuted believers have considered it a privilege and have rejoiced even whilst they suffered for Christ. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch in the second century, at the beginning of the second century, on his way to Rome, he begged the, churches, the church leaders there that they should not attempt his release because he wanted to publicly suffer for Christ. And he said, let fire and the cross, he wrote, let the companies of wild beasts, let broken bones and tearing limbs, let the grinding of the old body and the malice of the devil come upon me, but it be so if only I may gain Christ. So, is Ignatius having more faith than Jesus? Even in the present past, in the, no, no, not present past, in the recent past, 
1985 in Uganda, which neighbors Kenya, when Joseph Mukasa is facing King Kabaka, that king banned about 100 people because of their faith in the gospel. When he's facing the executioner because of his faith, and moral standards, he called out the king because of things that he was doing that were contrary to the gospel. When he's about to be executed, he said, a Christian who gives his life for God has no reason to fear death. Tell the king that he has condemned me unjustly, but I forgive him from the heart. So is John Mukasa facing death courageously and Christ not. Even more interesting, Socrates, you know, Socrates has, has to see, has to drink the hamlock, the cup that he has to drink and when people are crying all around him, he says, no, I'm going to do this with a lot of courage. So is Socrates more courageous than Christ Jesus? The matters were joyful, but Christ was sorrowful. They were eager. He was reluctant. How can we compare them? Why is Jesus Christ reluctant? He who was steadfast, as he tells Peter, behind me the devil, he who was steadfast and clear in his mission of dying on the cross, could he now at the moment of action, be having cold feet. Has Jesus become a coward at this moment of action? This is what you've been living for. This is it. Has he become a coward? The answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. But the question still remains, what makes Christ Jesus greatly distressed and troubled. What makes him to look at his friends, Peter, John, and James, and say that I am sorrowful even unto death? What is it that makes Christ at this particular time to be in deep emotional turmoil? What is it? I think the clue to Jesus' emotional distress is found in this prayer. In verses 36 he says, Remove this cup from me. And the cup that Jesus Christ is talking about is nothing, nothing compared to the faithful matters that I've just mentioned a few minutes ago. The only first death. The cup symbolizes neither the physical pain of Christ being flogged and crucified, nor the mental distress of being despised and rejected by his own people, but rather the cup that Christ is talking about is the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, of enduring divine judgment that those sins deserved. It's far much than being flogged, than being beaten up, than being laughed at. It's, it's bearing this weight of God's judgment on sin. And this reading and understanding 
of the passage is strongly supported in the Old Testament usage of the word cup. In both the wisdom literature and the prophets, the Lord's cup is a symbol or symbol of God's wrath. Job says, a wicked person drinks of the wrath of the Almighty. And when Samaria is destroyed, God through Ezekiel warns Jerusalem that she will shortly suffer the same fate as Samaria. And listen to the words of God through prophet Ezekiel. You will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry. So God is telling Jerusalem that you will face my wrath in judgment. In a similar manner, God tells Jeremiah to take old from God's end a cup filled with the wine of God's wrath and make the nations to whom he has sent to drink it. Listen to the words of God through Jeremiah. Take from my end this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I sent you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and they will go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. I hear people say, nobody can judge me. They even have it on their t-shirts. Only God can judge me. And I usually say, no, bad brothers. Oh, that's a bad thing. You don't want to be judged by God. Let people judge you as much as they want. You just don't want to face the wrath of God. You don't want to be judged by God. And even in Revelation, God's judgment is expressed in a similar figure of speech, whereby the wicked will drink Revelation says, the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. God is a holy God, and as a holy God, he must punish sin. And the plan that he had from Genesis 3 is to have a way in which he can be able to dwell with his people. And God, who is a holy God, cannot be able to dwell with his people without the punishment of sin. His wrath has to be poured out. And Christ knows that this is the cup that he has to drink. He recognizes that the cup being offered contains, contains the God's wrath. The wrath that we've read is given to the wicked causes disorientation of the body and the mind is confused like drunkenness. He is distraught. Christ, who is sinless, will become so identified with sin as to bear the sin of all. He who knew no sin will be made to know sin. It is from this this reality that Christ, being holy, who knew no sin, will face the wrath of God. It is from this prospect of contact with human sin that the sinless soul of Christ, of Jesus, recoils. He is distraught. In a few hours, he will face the darkest chapter 
of his life. So dark will it be that the sun will not look. It will go dark to show the judgment of God upon sin. To show this simple that now God has put that judgment on Christ. He knows that in a few hours, when God the Father will pierce him for our transgressions, crush him for our iniquities, and punish him that we may have peace. Our sin is extremely horrible. We can never really grasp the gravity of our sin unless we look at the cross of Christ Jesus. Unless we look at Christ Jesus in Gethsemane and realize that our sin is not something just to be excused. It's something that is horrible and terrible. Ultimately, what sent Christ on the cross was neither the greed of Judas, nor the envy of the priest, nor the cowardice of Pilate, but our own greed, our own envy, our own cowardice, and other sins. But Christ's resolve is that in love and mercy, he will dare the judgment of God so that he can put our sins away. So like the movie, The Passion of Christ, what troubles Jesus is not merely the prospect of physical suffering and alienation from his friends. It's the judgment of God for sin. Because I'm talking about prayer this morning, it's interesting the prayer that Christ prays at this particular time of emotional distress, of being sorrowful, and of being troubled. Look at the prayer that he prays in Mark 14:36. Let's, let's take a look at that prayer. Christ says, Abba Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I find it in my life and even in the life of other believers that when we plan for things and the way we plan for them is not the way that comes out or we are in bad situations in our lives, sometimes our confidence and trust in God starts to waver. We have examples even in the Bible, Psalm 42. And the psalmist is in, in a very deep difficulty in his life and 
he continues to preach his soul and says, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Trust in God. Let your trust in God be unwavering. And Christ's confidence and trust in his Father is unwavering at this particular time. He knows that God is God and God is good. And he cries out, Christ, he cries out, Abba, Father. Both the Aramaic Abba and the Greek Pater, Father. And it's a double emphasis on his eternal, eternal union with God as the eternally begotten Son of God. Christ is saying, this is who I am. I'm an eternally begotten son of God, and God is my father, and I know that the will and purposes of good of God for the redemption of the world are going to be fulfilled through me, and those purposes are good. He is the son of God, and that's how he cries, Abba, Father. That usage of, of the terms in prayer, Abba, Father, it's only used here in Mark and also by Paul, both in Romans and Galatians. And the, in the two instances that Paul uses, Abba, Father, how we need to pray as be believers. It's an emphasis that we've been adopted as children of God through our union with Christ Jesus. And because of that, we can call to God, even in the darkest and deepest moments of our lives, Abba, Father. Because we are sons and daughters of God. That's the emphasis that Paul puts in Romans 8 and also in Galatians 6. Do you know that? Do you know that? In the darkest and deepest moments of your life, to know that my identity and who I am is a child of God. And I can go to God even in the deepest, in the deepest and darkest moments of my life and say, Abba, Father. And we can only be able to call a God our Father because Christ is Son fully obeyed God. He said, let your will be done in my life. I will go to the cross. And because of that, that's the reason that we can be able to come and in a similar manner, even in difficult times in our lives, say to God, Abba, Father. A double emphasis of our sonship in God. That God, through Christ Jesus Christ, has made us his children. Abba, Father. Do we pray that way? Do we know that we have a Father who cares for us? And do we ask for the will of God to be done in our lives? Or do we go through life having it our way? What's the result of this time that Christ spends in prayer? Look at what he tells his disciples. After he comes and sees them asleep, in verses 40, 42, uh, 41 and 42 he says, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at end. And I think that's a beautiful picture. 
Jesus emerges from his prayer time resolute and determined to do the will of God the Father. Such that when Peter draws his sword in attempt to thwart the arrest of Jesus Christ. Peter has been sleeping, okay? Peter has been sleeping, Christ is being arrested, and he draws his sword in an attempt to thwart the arrest of Jesus Christ. Jesus responds by these words in John 18. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? But Luke 23, 43 tells us that as Jesus prayed, an angel from heaven threatened, not threatened, strengthened him as he prayed. And so Jesus Christ comes out of this time of prayer, resolute and confident to do the will of God in his lives. I try, I like telling people that there are no useless prayers. You can never come to God as the Son of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and have your prayers not answered. There are no useless prayers. We come to God, we pray, and He strengthens us. If you go to, if you go to the website of any leading magazines, there's an option for you to submit your work for consideration. And so works submitted through this system are usually known as the slash pile. And it's universally agreed uh, in the literary world that almost no one gets published from the slash pile. If you submit your work in the slash pile, almost no one ever gets published in the New Yorker or Wasafiri magazine through the slash pile. So if you want to be published, you get an agent, one who speaks and submits your work to the editors on your behalf. Then at that time, you might be a sloppy writer, but you have one who is speaking for you, and your chances of being published increase. I think sometimes we view prayer as a desperate, desperate writer with no agent submitting his work to the slash pile. You are like, I'm not sure whether anyone will read it, but off it goes. But that's not the case. We have an agent. We have a perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. And in him, and through him, we are assured that our stories will be read. All our prayers will be heard and answered, and we will be strengthened. That is why Paul, when he's writing to the church in Philippi, admonishes them, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And Paul tells us that the consequence of that, the consequence of not being anxious, and bringing our prayers to God, is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our prayers will be hard because we are children of God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Let us pray without ceasing. 
knowing that he who fully committed himself to the will of the Father, who was forsaken by God, because Christ is forsaken by God, has made it sure that we will never be forsaken by God. And so even this morning, if you are feeling that God is far, that God has forsaken you, it's a feeling. It's not the reality. Tim Keller says that Sometimes our hearts will tell us one thing that we have to fight because we know that Christ was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. It's that. It's a feeling. We can come to the Lord in prayer. So let us commit ourselves to prayer. And a prayerful life, like anything else worthwhile in life, doesn't just happen. We have to make plans for it. Because when Jesus finds Peter, John, and James asleep, he just doesn't tell them it's okay. I know you are too tired. No, he asks them to pray. So we commit ourselves to prayer. And John Calvin, one of my favorite theologians, says that prayer is one of the best ways to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you pray for them. And so the question is, how are you doing this morning on your love for your brother and sister in Christ? How are you doing this morning on your love for your spouse, on your love for your co-workers, on your love for your friends at college? Are you praying for them? So we commit to prayer as an act of love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray not to enter into temptation because God is our highest good and without him we can do nothing. And we pray to increase our joy in God. And so as a church, let us pray without ceasing. Amen? Let's pray. we are weak weak like John Peter and James and we pray for your strength pray that you would encourage us Lord to commit ourselves to prayer that we would see it as a priority in our lives that we would be those who pray for our spouses for our neighbors and for those who have called in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope, that we would not despair, that we would love you more than anything, Lord, and that we would know in our lives that the highest good that you've called us as people is to love you and to cherish you, and that that cannot happen without a life of prayer. So, Lord, I would pray that you'd form in each and every one of us, in our hearts, a desire to love you and to love others through prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do pray, trusting and believing. Amen.